Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Last few weeks, we've been looking at the biblical principle of every believer a minister. We started off talking about how greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured the same way as man measures it uh, against one another here in the world. And and we looked at the faithful servant and how all Christians are full-time ministers. Remember, the distinction is not uh, full-time minister versus a layperson. It's full-time minister versus occupational minister. Um, Not every full-time minister does it occupationally, but every believer should consider themselves a full-time minister. And super important to recognize that those of us in occupational ministry, while it is a high calling and while it is a privilege uh, and while it is right to honor those uh, with oversight, it does not translate to a higher rank in the kingdom of God. And the next week we looked mostly at the parable of the talents and explored this and how we are not judged. My ministry is not judged against your ministry. My soul winning is not judged against your soul winning. My ministry and what I do for God is measured against what God has commanded and equipped me to do. The rewards I receive from God in the kingdom are going to be based on the race that I ran. I'm not racing you. I'm racing against, not against, but I'm racing in accordance with, with, the, with the race that God has set before me. If I fulfill what I am called to do, my reward is as great as Billy Graham, as long as Billy Graham accomplished everything he was supposed to do. Probably came close. Uh, But we looked at the parable of the talents, and uh, one of the things we looked at was how the wicked and lazy servant was lazy because he went and hid his talent and did nothing with it. He didn't multiply it. He showed no profit for the master, but he was wicked because he mischaracterized the master right, as harsh and cheap, and this is supposed to represent God, and people have a a wrong view of God and a negative view of serving God, and our conclusion is that God is the best boss in the world, and I end, that's the message I ended with three points of practical application, give generously, serve in the church, and remember when you leave the assembly, you are a minister, then last week, we discussed that last one, about every, that how you are to be a minister outside the walls of this church, we talked about Dr. James Poor the uh, organic chemist and professor of Christian, or uh, Christian, professor of uh, computer science at Rice University, top-tier scientist, who, uh, according to his testimony, leads on average one person a week to believe in Jesus Christ. Not because he's a professional minister, he's a professional scientist, but because he takes his job as a minister seriously. He can reach people that I can't, but guess what? You can reach people that I can't. Please be convinced of that. In many, many cases, you are much more effective than I can be at reaching the lost that are in your sphere of influence. Faithfulness, not ability, is what God is looking for. God makes faithful people able. Remember that from last week. All right, today I want to look at another story or two, actually three, in the Bible that stress the importance of what we might call lay ministry, one-on-one evangelism. Um, 
And I want to start with Stephen, but I will add a qualifier near the end. But let's read um, some of this. In Acts chapter 6, we'll go ahead and begin with verse 1. And we read, in those days, now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now one application of this is really obvious, I think, there, is that the seven were faithful and efficient in their management of this ministry, this administrative duty, and that that freed Peter and the other apostles to spend more time in the word and prayer and more fully equip those who were teaching, who they were teaching, without being overwhelmed by stuff that was very, very important, but was also distracting them from what they were called to do. And because it relieved them of that responsibility, they were able to more fully commit themselves to study, to prayer, and to ministry. And what was the result? The number of disciples was multiplied even to the point where many of the priests believed. This is a similar situation, by the way. I'm sure many of you have already made this connection to what Moses dealt with before his father-in-law, Jethro, I won't say anything about Max Bear, junior or senior, the little inside joke from our small group. His father-in-law, Jethro, advised him, yeah, Moses, you're handling too much stuff on your own, judging these little uh, penny-ante cases. You need to delegate some of this responsibility to other people who care for the people like you do. And, uh, but this is clearly not all they were doing, at least not for long, because look in, uh, we'll just continue on here in Acts 6, 8, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then some began to dispute with Stephen, but in verse 10 it says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now listen to me. What was Stephen's ministry in the church? And Peter refers to it as waiting tables. Uh, but essentially what these seven were doing was overseeing the benevolence ministry, the distribution. But what did he do on his own time, as it were? Outside the assembly, he spoke. He did signs and wonders among the people. This is pretty significant. And, and most of you know what happens next. He made some enemies for whatever reason. He got some false accusers. Uh, to come and bear witness against him. He was taken before the religious court, the Jewish court, and in his defense, he delivered a magnificent, a magnificent, I was thinking Magnificat and Magnificent at the same time. He didn't deliver the Magnificat. That was somebody else. I'll remember her name later. 
she deli- he delivered a magnificent sermon as his defense. And what it was was a recitation of everything God had done for the children of Israel. And frankly, this is my take on it. I'm not judging Stephen. He was certainly bolder and uh, more of a hero than I. However, I think reading his sermon, he nails it until he gets to the very end. I think he could have been a little more diplomatic. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember how he ends this thing. He was right. I just wonder if maybe his zeal overcame his love at a moment. But for whatever reason, uh, whatever, I'm not saying he didn't hear from God. This could have been 100% from God. Uh, But long story short, they were infuriated by the end of his message. And frankly, I believe they were probably demonically inspired, certainly demonically inspired, possibly even possessed. Uh, But their response was to drag him out and stone him to death. Now, there are a couple of critical details. And I know a lot of you know this, but bear with me. As they were snarling at him, it says they were literally baring their teeth, gnashing their teeth at him. (laughs) This is not a reasonable scene you would expect in a courtroom setting, right? And then it says they rushed at him with their fingers in their ears. (laughs) But as they're snarling at him, he had an open vision of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. And as they dragged him out in preparation to stone him, they took off their outer garments. Maybe they get a better throw that way. And what were they doing with those garments? They were laying them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul was apparently an up-and-coming guy with some authority among the Pharisees because it says right there in the Scripture that he was consenting to Stephen's death. Now, why would it say that if his consent had nothing to do with anything? His consent must have been important. The other important detail is that Stephen, with his last breath, prayed that God would not hold his being stoned to death against the people who were stoning him to death. Sounds like somebody else I know. Remember Jesus? Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen says, don't charge this sin to their account. Now, Saul, at this point, did his best to not only scatter the church and make them miserable, but went so far as to burst into homes and drag believers off to prison And a little time later, he's on his way to Damascus, now with official papers from the high priest authorizing him to arrest any believers he finds in Damascus. And it says, he's authorized to bring them back and put them in prison, but it says as he's going, he's breathing threats of murder against the church. And most of you know what happened then. He has this dramatic, supernatural encounter with the risen Christ. He is knocked down, he is stricken blind, he is spoken to by Jesus, and he is converted. There are details about that. There are several things we're looking at today that deserve sermons on their own, but I'm focusing on a detail, that, a thread that runs through all of these examples. So let me move, and let me just share a couple of things here. Uh, Saul of course, became Paul, went on to become probably the, well, I think certainly, the second most important figure in Christianity after Jesus himself. 
his preaching, his teaching, his miracles, his church planting, and most of all, his writings have been used by God to bring literally millions, possibly billions, to Christ down through the centuries. But I cannot help but believe that his witnessing Stephen's death made an impression on him that he could never shake. Paul was very well versed in the scripture, so he had to know that Stephen's sermon was right on the money, scripturally, even if he, along with several others, were offended by the altar call or the closing of his sermon. He had to have been impressed with Stephen's boldness. He had to have been impressed by the manner in which he died. And think about this, walking everywhere he went or riding on animals everywhere he went, he had tons of time to think about this, to ruminate on it. All that to say, I believe Stephen's ministry outside his church duties had a direct impact on Saul's salvation. And by virtue of that, had an impact on everybody that Paul ministered to. That's quite a legacy. It makes me think of Edward Kimball. We talked about him um, a couple years ago, I guess. We ta- whenever it was Billy Graham died, I did a Wednesday night message talking about Edward Kimball. He was a volunteer Sunday school teacher. And uh, there was uh, one of his Sunday school students was working at a shoe store, 17-year-old kid, and he just went in to visit him and... I guess if he had time, there were no other customers in there. He had time, and it says he shared the love of God with him, and this kid responded to the love of God. That kid was Dwight Moody. Dwight L. Moody, not the other Dwight Moody. <laughs> of course, uh, D.L. Moody, famous, uh, became a famous evangelist and many other things. Uh, but during an altar call that he was giving at one of his meetings, a man named Wilbur Chapman came to the Lord. And Chapman himself became a very effective evangelist, led thousands of people to the Lord. Uh, A little later on, or somewhere around the same time frame, a baseball player named Billy Sunday. He got saved actually listening to a street preacher at Pacific Garden Mission. Is that what it's called? The one up in Chicago? And uh, was looking for something to do. And so Wilbur Chapman hired him as his assistant. And when Chapman retired... Billy Sunday took that ministry over, and of course, Billy Sunday became a super effective evangelist, led thousands and thousands to the Lord. And uh, he held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, that was, had enormous impact. Now, a lot of, there have been great meetings, one-night meetings, one-week meetings, one-month meetings, that, that do have an enormous impact. What was one of the things that was super special about this one is that it, out of it grew a men's fellowship and prayer group that 10 years later was still going strong. That grew directly out of Billy Sunday's ministry. And one day in prayer, as they were, they were seeking the Lord's guidance, the Lord moved on them to invite an evangelist named Mordecai Ham to hold a, a revival meeting. And guess who answered the altar call at that meeting? Billy Graham. And so you draw a direct line back, and it started with Edward Kimball, volunteer Sunday school teacher. And you look at the millions 
and millions of people who got saved just between Edward Kim And you wonder, who led Edward Kimball to the Lord? You see, this all goes back and back and back, and to God be the ultimate glory. But you cannot diminish in any way the impact of one minister's contribution. And we're all ministers. Now, that's what I think about when I think of Stephen's ministry. It was a relatively short one, but it was, I am convinced, a significant part of what led to Saul's conversion to Paul and everything that followed. The qualifier that I mentioned that I want to kind of put on him is that he did have hands laid on him by the apostles. Now, it was to serve tables, uh, but it still was a kind of ordination, so I'm not sure he strictly qualifies as a layman. He's often considered one of the, the those seven were considered uh, the first deacons. But let's move on and talk about the next one, and that's the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, Jesus sits down by a well in a Samaritan town and speaks with a woman, and, in, and uh, he starts talking about, he asks her for a drink, and then uh, he tells her about living water. If he said, you know, if you know who you were talking to, you'd ask me for a drink. And I'd give you water that you could drink. You'd never be thirsty again. And then in, uh, in this conversation, he, I believe, well, I know, from, from, he, he gives a word of knowledge by the Holy Spirit and says some things that, that reveal that he, is, that he now knows about her history, her relationship history, her marital history. And this is, causes her to immediately acknowledge that he's a prophet. You know, he said, he says, go get your husband, and we'll talk some more. I don't have a husband. He says, no kidding, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and now you're living with a guy you're not married to. And she goes, oh, you're a prophet. And then starts picking his brain about where's the right place to worship. And he shares some things. They talk about this. And then, let's actually pick this up in John chapter 4, verse 28. The woman left her water pot, went away into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Listen to this. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is a beautiful encapsulation of personal evangelism. You share what you know of Christ, however little you think it is. You share your testimony with somebody, and God will use you to bring this person to the point of salvation, receiving Christ, conversion, born again, whatever you want to call it. Now, I believe in every case later on, everybody has this experience where they have their own moment, a chance to re reaffirm. These people there are people who believed in Jesus because of what the woman said. They already believed. Now, this was... You understand, pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection, so they weren't exactly born again, but they did become believers in Christ just because of what the woman said. And what she said was not much. This guy told me everything I ever did. I think he's the Messiah, you know? If what you're saying is true, we believe he's the Messiah too. Then they heard him and they said, okay, we still believe, but now it's not just based on your testimony, it's based on our experience, our hearing his words. And what happens then no matter what the circumstances are, and I'm getting just a little outside my notes, but I don't, I don't have too much further to go, so don't sweat it. 
whatever the circumstances are when we confess Christ for the first time, I believe God honors that. I believe God is looking for reasons and excuses to get anybody into heaven. He's not looking for ways to keep us out. But I do believe, I've seen sincere conversions. I've seen heartfelt prayers. I've seen uh, people immediately get on fire and it doesn't last because they were saved in a moment that stirred them to respond to the truth. But somewhere along the line, they failed to make it their own faith. This is what I want to talk about next week, how we keep the faith, so don't miss it. And just because I told you what I'm talking about next week doesn't mean I'm done with this week, so don't check out yet. But you won't want to miss that. I've already got a couple stories I want to tell you. The last person I want to look at today is my favorite example, and it is a story that appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And before getting into the big story, I need to clear up some confusing details. Now, Jesus had spent some time ministering in Capernaum, and he and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee, really a lake, in a boat. And you know this story. A storm comes up, a violent storm. And the disciples are terrified. Jesus, not so much. He's asleep. And they wake him up and say, Master, don't you care? We're about to die. We can't survive this storm. There's no way the boat's going to survive. He gets up. He rebukes the wind, the waves. The sea is calm. And then he rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. And then they get to the other side. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing because depending on which gospel you're reading and depending on which translation you're reading, they disembark either in the land of the Gergesenes, the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes. Now, these are not just alternate spellings of the same place. We know where Gadara was. We know where Gerasa was. Gergasa, we're not sure. There's, there's an interesting origin story to that name even appearing in the scriptures that I'm not going to go into now. If you want to talk about it, or maybe I can work it into another sermon. It's very interesting and very compelling, uh, but it's not exactly germane to what we're talking about. Um, I will tell you that... Um, I'll put it this way. Number one, in all three Gospels, it doesn't say, all three of the Gospels in which this story appears, it never says they landed in the town of Gadara. They landed in the city of Gerasa. It says they, land, they, they set foot into the region or the country of the Gadarenes. See the difference? How many of you know where Burbank, Illinois is? Nobody? How about uh, Hoffman Estates? few more, right? Schaumburg. What am I talking about? These are all suburbs of Chicago. Now, if you're out of town, out of state somewhere, and somebody says, and you, and you live in Burbank, which is literally across the street from Chicago city limits, and they say, where are you from? What are you going to say? You might say, I'm from Burbank, but then you'd follow it up with essentially Chicago. Or you might just say, Chicagoland. I live in the suburbs. Or you might just say, I'm from Chicago. That's what a lot of people do. It's the area of Chicago. This is all this scripture is saying. Don't get hung up on, was it Gadara? Was it Gerasa? Do these scriptures contradict one another? No, because the region of the Gadarenes is the exact same region as the Gerasenes. I'm just saying this was the area. This area was called the Decapolis. Ten cities spread over several miles apart that were a, it was Gentile territory. All right? So don't sweat those kinds of details. There's always a, a fairly easy answer. Just go with the main story, which the next part of it creates another difficulty. Uh, it says when they stepped out of the boat, they had an encounter with a 
demon-possessed man, except that Matthew says it was two demon-possessed men. Now, this is not like the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Some people say, well, here it says he fed uh, 5,000. Here it says he fed 4,000. Those were two distinct events. He fed 5,000 and he fed 4,000. And it goes into such detail. You can't mix those up. And and they appear in the same Gospels, too, so they wouldn't make a mistake like that. This is different because this is the same story. When it talked about two men coming out of the tombs to meet Jesus, that's the same story as the other two Gospels talking about a man. Not too difficult to reconcile. For one thing, Mark and Luke don't specifically say there was only one man. They were simply focusing on one of them, possibly because he was a prominent citizen of Gadara or Gerasa. I think more likely because he was more notorious, more violent. I'm thinking now of a guy. See if you can guess who I'm thinking of. Southern California, convicted in 1969 of murdering several people, including the actress Sharon Tate. Anybody know who I'm talking about? That's right, Tex Watson. You weren't thinking of Tex Watson? Maybe you were thinking of Patricia Krenwinkel, his accomplice. This is true. No, who are you thinking of? Charles Manson. Same group, same crimes. But when you think about those murders, you think about crazy Charlie with the swastika carved in his head, you know, trying to impress the parole board. He was the ringleader, the true crazy, even though he wasn't the only murderer. Same deal here, I think. You had two guys, but one of them was notorious. You know, it talked about you couldn't, you couldn't pass by there. This guy was a human roadblock. You didn't want to drive by. Anybody remember the Blue Man? There's a, the cemetery over there by the Urbana Country Club. There's a road you didn't want to travel unless you had somebody with you because the Blue Man in the cemetery. Uh, you didn't want to go near this because this guy was naked and howling in the tombs, cutting himself, it says. He was a terror. You couldn't bind him. He broke chains and shackles. And they were both demon-possessed. But Jesus discovers very quickly, this guy has a lot of demons. Let's just read this. In Matthew 8, this is the shortest version. I'm giving you Matthew's version. All three versions add some interesting detail. But this, I'm going to read this one, uh, beginning in verse uh, 28 of Matthew 8. When he had come to the other side, the country of the Gergesenes, There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And Jesus said to them, Go. So when they had come out, They went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. That's the thing that happened. What do you mean including what happened to the demon-possessed men? Uh, They went in and told them about the pigs, didn't they? And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they said, Thank you for delivering us from the terror of these lunatics. No. And when they saw him, they begged him, begged him to depart from the region. 
Now, there is a ton of stuff in this story that is worth a closer look and a a full unpacking, but this message is focused on personal evangelism, so I'm going to only draw your attention to a couple of things. One is that in all three of these accounts, it is recorded that the people urged and begged Jesus to leave. None of them are on record as wanting him to stay. They knew what a menace this demoniac was. He just talked about how he broke chains and howled and ran around naked, cut himself. So getting this guy delivered was a big deal to a lot of people. But, I don't know how big a deal this was in their decision, but 2,000 pigs died in the process of delivering this guy. Bothered him. It seems that Jesus was prepared. He went over there to preach, teach, and heal in the Decapolis. And he starts off with a notable miracle, but they weren't having any of it. Thanks for healing this guy, but, well, bye. Hear that? (laughs) Mark and Luke also record this detail. Uh, I'll read it out of Mark in uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Now, this is where it gets good. Sometime later, Jesus was ministering in Tyre and Sidon. These were also cities in Gentile territory. And this is where he had the conversation with the woman about uh, he, where he called healing the children's bread. And we don't, well, I don't want to heal your daughter because uh, this is the children's bread and it's not good for the children's bread to be thrown to the dogs. And then he commended this woman's faith. You know this story, right? And right after that, in uh, Matthew Uh, 15, beginning in verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then a great, sorry, then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Do you know where he was? Actually, right after this, right after that, these people continue. They follow him for three days, and he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. Do you know where he was when this happened? Decapolis. He was back in Decapolis where they had begged him to leave. They made it clear they wanted nothing to do with his ministry. And a short time later, they roll out the red carpet. They swarm him. What changed? I believe, with all my heart, that a man who had been violently demon-possessed, who had no training, no time with Jesus as a disciple, simply did what Jesus commanded. He went about telling people what Jesus did for him. Now, he had a reputation. He had a great opening line. How many of you have heard the story about the blue man? No. How many of you have heard the story about the gathering demoniac? Yeah, tell me what you've heard. Oh, he was crazy. 
scared the snot out of this whole region. No one, none of us would go within 10 miles of this graveyard because you're afraid you might run into him. Yeah, yeah, tell me more. Oh, he used to cut himself. He used to howl. He didn't even wear clothes. Yeah, yeah. That was me. What? No, that was me. You had a demon? No, 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 no. I had thousands of demons. That wasn't you. It was me. What happened? Jesus came and cast them out of me. This was the beginning and end of this guy's theology. All he had, the only thing he had to offer was, Jesus did this for me. But it was enough to change the attitude of this entire region because the next time Jesus came back, he was more than invited to stay. They just followed him everywhere he went to the point where they hadn't eaten in days until Jesus fed them. What has Jesus done for you? You may not be called to go to Bible school. You may be a relatively new believer, but has Jesus done something for you? The answer is yes, even if you can't think of one thing right now. And you better be able to think of one thing. He saved you, right? If that's all you have, you are called to testify. It's not, can I get a theologian? It's, can I get a witness? I saw a really cool advertisement for some program. I only saw it once. I need to dig, just go back and see exactly what it was. But something, it's a program or a book that Ted Decker is advertising or presenting. And it starts off, I don't know if you've seen it, it starts off with a little girl holding a candle. And she's singing the bright smile on her face. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And then it fades, and then she comes back a little bit older. Are you guys making fun of me because I didn't have the tune right? Yes, you are. <laughs> and then she comes back a little bit older, and she's still smiling, but not as much, and she's singing a little softer. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Then they show her as a young woman, softly singing it. Sound fades, candle goes out. And then Ted Decker says, who told you your light was little? If this is how we're going to talk about our faith, it's just my little light, I'm going to let it shine. What's the source of your light? Where does your light come from? It's Jesus Christ, it's the Holy Ghost, right? Is that little? What's, what's little? The window you're letting it shine out of. The testimony of the Samaritan woman caused many to believe in Jesus. The testimony of the Gadarene demoniac caused a whole region to receive him into their midst in a Gentile land. And this was before, as I mentioned, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before the ascension, before the Holy Ghost had been poured out. Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost and power and witnessed so powerfully his testimony moved a hate-filled, anti-Christian Saul to a divine encounter with Christ that literally changed the course of history. You have been filled with the same Holy Spirit. You better believe that God will use your testimony to bring others to himself. Don't waste any more time. You have a ministry to fulfill. Praise and worship team, come up here. I have a quick comment. 
And I'll close this out. In the early days, my early days as a Christian, this was at the same time as our family's early days of exposure to the charismatic movement. And one of the places we went on the regular was to these full gospel businessmen's fellowship meetings. Uh, Beatty's would go, the Max would go, the Dunk, Dunkman's would go, who, I don't know who else was all a part of that group, the McGay's. Uh, and many of the speakers that I remember, they would have special speakers because you didn't have churches like this. So you couldn't have, you know, like take turns, host pastors or everything. So you always have a special speaker. And this was a parachurch organization anyway. But many times the, the special speaker was somebody with a really colorful past. They were a criminal. They had spent years in prison. Or they, were, they just had this uh, debauched lifestyle that God had pulled them out of. Or they had to experience a supernatural, notable, miraculous healing or something like that. And these stories were gripping they got our attention. They fired us up. Absolutely, God used them. God can certainly use those kinds of pasts for his glory, but he doesn't need them. Don't go out and lead a debauched lifestyle and risk your life or do something just so you'll have a great story of being delivered from it someday. As far as we know, Edward Kimball didn't have a dramatic testimony to share with Moody says specifically in many different accounts, he just went in and shared the love of God with Moody, and Moody responded. Moody himself was just a bored teenager. He wasn't out raising hell. He just was a bored kid who needed somebody to tell him, remind him that God was real and God loved him, and he responded to that love. If you are born again, you have a testimony. Stand up with me. What have I got to share? My testimony is not that exciting. People, I know that's hard to believe in this distracted age and so many things competing for so many people's attention. And with a vocal, a number, I believe a relatively small number, but very overrepresented number of people saying the nastiest things about Christ and his church you'd better believe there are people out there who are so thirsty. If you will be bold enough to share a drop of that living water that bubbles up out of you or is supposed to be bubbling up out of you, they will respond and ask for a drink. You think, I don't have enough to share that'll even cause their throat to not be parched but you share enough you share what you have and all they'll want to do is drown in it but you've got to be you've got to trust that the work that Jesus Christ did in you was miraculous supernatural that it changed something and this is a concern and we'll, this is a part of what we're going to be talking about next week what did happen when you committed your life to Christ what changed? Do you understand the supernatural nature of the new birth? Most of you do. Most of you in here, I know, and I know you've been keeping the faith for many, many years. Some of you, many decades. God bless you for that. If you are a young believer, a relatively new believer, do not take for granted. Don't make the mistake of saying, well, this really turned me on. Uh, I hope I'm still turned on a year from now. 
your eternal destiny and your attitude about Christ is largely in your hands right now. You cling to the moment that God grabbed you and rescued you, and you explore that. You remind yourself of it. You testify. You, you witness to yourself about what God did. He'll stir you up. He'll remind you. Biggest mistake is to find some way to disconnect and find yourself bored. And then suddenly you're like, well, that was a phase I went through. Now, again, I know I'm largely preaching to the converted, but this is so serious that I rarely, if ever, feel the release or the permission to end a service without this. So I'm asking you, is there anybody in here? I'm, I've been speaking to you as if you were believers. Is there anybody in here who is not? You have never committed your life to Christ. You've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never acknowledged him as Lord of your life. You've never recognized that the only thing that can make you right in God's eyes is his shed blood, his death, and his resurrection. This is what it means to be born again, truly converted. And then you start on a road of discipleship, lordship, holiness. Is there anybody who says, today's my day? Never mind what you thought, never mind what I thought, I am committing my life to Christ today because I'm not sure and I want to be sure or I just know I'm not, but I want to be. I came in here wondering. I came in here an unbeliever. I came in here maybe an anti-Christian, but I'm walking out of here a son of God. Today's your day if you will acknowledge this. I'm going to pray real quick. I'm going to reiterate that, that invitation. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the solid witness of faithful believers who have shared what you have done in their lives and what that has meant down through the years, down through the century, indeed down through the millennia to us. Because it was because of those ch that chain of events that the people we spoke about today ultimately can be connected to our individual moment of receiving the salvation you provided 2,000 years ago. And I pray, Lord God, that you do it again today. The Holy Spirit, you do what only you can do. You convict those who have not yet surrendered of their need to surrender. You, con you, you convince them that you are who you say you are. That Jesus truly is the one that we need, the only way into right standing with you. And that the only life truly worth living is the life that you have designed for us. The path that you have set before us. Thank you for the fulfillment that comes from that. And I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who needs to make that decision, that you would grant them now the humility, the wisdom, and the boldness to make that decision now. And all the believers who are praying with me said, Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.